When you think of Chicago on the big screen, what movie comes to mind? The Blues Brothers? Dark Knight? Or maybe Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Well, to me, there's one title that's hand down the, hands down the best movie set in Chicago, and that's The Fugitive. The movie showcases a wide scope of 1993 Chicago, and this month is its 30th anniversary. Next star. Merchandise Mart. Son of a their boy came home. That bell, that bell is the bell on the Well Street Bridge. It's six blocks away. I knew that was an elevated train. Oh yeah, big dog, you're never wrong. Sam, transit cop spotted Kimball on the L. He's headed toward Balbo. The CPD is on the way. In honor of the anniversary and for more on his other work, returning to the film's director, Chicago native. Andrew Davis. Andrew, welcome to Reset. Nice to hear your voice. I wish I could see you. I wish you were in studio, too. So The Fugitive hit theaters in the U.S. on August 6, 1993. How does it feel 30 years later? Well, we had an amazing screening Saturday night in Los Angeles at the American Cinematheque, and it was a sold-out house. And... I think 90% of the people who were there had seen the movie about 10 times. So it was quite a, a, a wonderful honor to be able to watch the film uh, again in a new remastered version and realize it still lives and it still has relevance and is appreciated around the world. I was going into my senior year of high school when the movie came out. And uh, my play cousin was like, let's go to the High Park Movie Theater to see The Fugitive. And I am not a thriller person. I went reluctantly. And I think that's part of the memory that I hold so close is that I walked out loving the movie. It was so intelligent. And I think it took me a lot of years to really understand what was happening with Provasic and what Dr. Kimball was able, able to uncover. Uh, but it was just such a smart movie. And... Well Thank you. And the cast, uh, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, Julianne Moore, Chicago's own theater actress, Cheryl Lynn Bruce. Uh, but when you were filming the movie, the script was changing as real time. And I was reading the oral history and Tommy Lee Jones thought that he might not work again after the movie came out. How did you feel fil filming it? Well, I was so busy just trying to get every day's work done uh, and make it make sense uh, that I didn't uh, worry about that. You know, I was very blessed to be with an incredible group of actors and had the great support of uh, uh, my right arm, this producer, Peter Rigger Scott and Warner Brothers, because we just made Under Siege and it was a big hit. And I, I just was focused on what was going on. But it's interesting we talk about Provasic. You know, when I was offered the project, the script was not in very good shape. And in fact, the Tommy Lee Jones character had hired the one-armed man because Harrison had messed up on the operating room table on Tommy's wife. I mean, I'm using their, their real names rather than their character names. And so I called my sister and I said, Josie, I've got this great possibility of making a movie with Harrison Ford based on the fugitive. What could get a doctor in a lot of trouble? And she said, give me a couple of days. And she called me back. She was a nurse at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in, in Chicago. She's from Chicago, of course. I mean, Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. She studied nursing in Chicago. And um, she said, a young resident 
recommended that there be a drug protocol that this doctor says is not working, it's dangerous. And that became the basis of the plot. We created a, a, a drug called Provasic in a, in, a, in a pharmaceutical company based upon my producer, producer's name, Peter McGregor Scott, called Devlin McGregor, the Devlin <laughs> McGregor. And that became the basis of the story. So, you know, it's basically Les Miserables. It's about the unjustly accused man. And uh, so there was a great spine to it and, and an emotional heart to it that made you really care about Harrison. And then with this sort of dogged uh, sheriff chasing him, you had a great dynamic between these two. And something else that was changed from the script was a love interest between Harrison Ford and Julianne Moore. Yeah, well, it, that was taken out very quickly because, as as Peter pointed out to me in about the second day of shooting, as you know, this man's yearning in, in suffering for his wife, and you can't have him start having a relationship with another woman. And I totally agreed with him. So, unfortunately, Julianne Moore had to be told that some of her scenes were going to be cut, but it made the movie better. And certainly, she's a great presence in the film. For about a year and a half, I lived in historic Pullman, just moved uh, a few months ago. And so, of course, I went out to find the row house that Frederick Sykes, the one our man, lived in. And throughout the the movie, we see Richard Kimball go from River North to the South Side. What was the thought behind the areas of the city you included? Well, they're just relocations that uh, rang true to me. You know, uh, if you look at... uh, uh, a movie I did called The Package with uh, Gene Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones, a Cold War thriller we shot in Chicago. We actually used Pullman for Berlin because of the architecture and how it felt. And um, a lot of the locations that are in, in The Fugitive were in my first film, Stony Island. And so, you know, the city has been my playground as a director. Uh, Above the Law, uh, Code of Silence, all of my films uh, chain reaction have used the city in a way that sort of speaks to the reality of where people would be and what they would do and what kind of neighborhoods are contrasting each other from the Gold Coast to the industrial southeast side. It's just part of the fabric of what that city is. And I've always tried to keep Chicago a character in my movies. And beyond the locations themselves, you feature the St. Patrick's Day Parade, which included Roland Burris, who was my neighbor growing up, waving in a scene. And Richard M. Daly is not too far from him. What did it take for you to do that parade scene? Because that was real. Very real. Very cold. Uh, well, there's, you know, it, 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 it's the end of a big chase through City Hall. And, uh, you know, Harrison base barely escapes Tommy in the in the city hall chase and we you know we, we couldn't do a French connection chase at that point and so I, I wanted to put uh, the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Stony Island and Richard Daly died so we shot his funeral instead with Susanna Hoffs and my brother Richie walking around outside of the church in Bridgeport so this time we were able to get a hold of the plumbers and the city and they said fine go ahead just don't cause any disruptions in the parade and we were invisible we had a Great steady cam operator, Steve St. John, who was working with me and, and the actors. And we went into the parade. Harrison grabbed a hat out of a, a, a garbage can and put it on and blended into the crowd. And it was it was quite amazing because people didn't recognize either of them. 
This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're celebrating 30 years of my favorite Chicago set movie, The Fugitive, by talking to the film's director and Chicago native, Andrew Davis. Andy, you're from Chicago. Tell us where you grew up and how Chicago shaped who you are as an artist. Well, I was born on the west side uh, in Bethany Hospital, and uh, I, I was uh, raised my first seven years in Rogers Park on Lunt Avenue, right near the beach. I learned how to swim at Sam Leone Park. And then my parents bought a little house built on a slag heap in the southeast side in an area called Jeffrey Manor near South Daring. And so I grew up in a neighborhood that was basically, you know, GIs getting loans on small houses. I went to Bowen High School and then went to the University of Illinois. But, you know, as a kid growing up in Chicago on the south side, we, you know, we were on our bikes. We would ride our bikes to from from the 100th Street all the way into into the borders of Indiana to buy firecrackers, you know, and uh, it was sort of an infamous na- neighborhood. You know, Richard Speck killed eight nurses across from my grammar school. Uh, Dick Butkus, Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, w- lived nearby. Um, Eddie Verdoliak was the uh, alderman. So it was a, it was a combination of working class uh, Slavics and Mexicans and Jews and Irish, everybody was living together. And Bowen High School was a real mix. When I was very young, something traumatic happened. My parents were very progressive. They were, believed in social justice or fought racism. And there was a housing project called Trumbull Park on 103rd and Bensley. And a black family moved into this all-white housing project. And it was racial tension for the next several years. And I was very traumatized by that as a kid. Bombs were going off. There's a novel called Trumbull Park written by a guy named Frank London Brown, who was one of the families who moved in. So that sort of set a a, a very dark tone for me in terms of race relations in Chicago. And I wanted Stony Island, my first film, to be a story about kids making it together with music being a common language. And... uh, in fact, it's going to be showing, I think, at the Davis Theater on the 16th of September, and then it's going to be re-released in the fall. So if you want to see what my roots are in terms of being a director, Stony Island has a lot of the looks of The Fugitive. And I, I want to talk more about Stony Island, but I want to talk a little bit more about your family. You were you said that Studs Terkel was like an uncle to you. Your family was, um, you know, passionate about civil rights. Well, you know, they, 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 they grew up believing in, you know, the commonality of man. And, and, uh, my brother said, in fact, Dinst does his book race about, about his growing up on the South side and, and having the experiences he had as the only white kid around. He went to Metro High School, which was a fantastic place. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was a part of, you know, I remember listening to, uh, Herb Kent, the cool gent from Crown Point, Indiana, playing Little Richard when I was a kid. And music was a big part of my life. We used to ride our bikes by Bo Diddley's house, and you know, right near where the, uh, President Obama's uh, uh, new uh, facility is going to be on Stony Island. And um, so I, I just had a rich growing up. I mean, 63rd and Stony Island was where the the the, the train stopped. The L doesn't stop anymore there, but that was like the center of the of the southeast side, and. Um, you know, we just felt this incredible involvement. And, you know, of course, there was a lot of tension. There was there were there was the Blackstone Rangers were were coming out of their 
I remember the Blackstone Rangers and Oscar Brown Jr. fighting for jobs uh, to build the Circle Campus and, and all the tensions that went around that when construction workers tried to stop them from going to federal hearings. And it was it was a, it was a rough and tough kind of area. And then, of course, when I came back from Champaign in 1968, uh, both to witness the the riots after Martin Luther King died, and and then the, the Democratic Convention, uh, working with Haskell Wexler on Medium Cool, I was sort of you know radicalized as a, a journalism major who wanted to use a camera to tell the stories of what was going on. So like you mentioned, Stony Island came out in 1978, and your brother is in it. Tell us about the plot. I had the chance to watch it over the weekend. Well, it's a story about a kid trying to put a band together with his his, his buddy, you know, Richie's uh, connecting with Stoney Robinson, whose name is Stoney in the movie. And um, uh, it's about a, what it takes to put a band together. A wonderful musician named Gene Barge, who just turned 97, who worked at Chess Records, who's uh, was famous for you know playing with Gary in the U.S. Bond School is out a quarter to three. Probably the the father of country soul sax playing. Uh, he he's the mentor who helps this band get put together. And uh, you know the poorest kid is an Appalachian kid from Uptown, who was based upon a character in Haskell's film Medium Cool. So Tamar Hoffs, who was a, another Southsider who had worked with me on a movie I shot called Lepke as a cameraman. Her father was Ralph Simon, who marched with Dr. King. We were from he, She was from Hyde Park. And she had a brother who was also into the blues and, and becoming a musician and involved in the cultural transition of the, of the music of the, of the black musicians from the South that Paul Butterfield and Mike Bloomfield were part of. So it's a story about coming of age in Chicago. You know, Benny Goodman was one of the first band leaders to have an integrated band. Gene Krupa went to Bowen High School, where I went to high school. And uh, so the history of music and culture on the South Side, where Quincy Jones grew up and uh, Shaka Khan and Herbie Hancock and so many other people, was a part of my roots, my fabric. And I wanted to sort of put that into a movie. And Oscar Brown Jr. is in the movie as well. Yeah, when Oscar Brown was 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 a legend to me, you know, he was he was the first sort of hip hop rapper that I knew, you know, ready, ready, all those songs that that dealt with relevance, you know, about kids growing up on the South Side together, and 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 I recommend everybody listen to Oscar's work, and his daughter Maggie's still performing a lot of his songs. How did you meet Oscar? Well, I I think my dad had been in a play with him. Uh, uh, and they knew each other and, uh, you know, we just, we reached out to him and asked him to be in this movie. It was a small, small part, but it was very significant to me to have him in the movie. Um, other films have taken audiences to where directors grew up, such as American Graffiti by George Lucas and Mean Streets by Martin Corsese. So you make this movie, Stony Island, highlighting your neighborhood. What in your mind did you want audiences to see? Well, I wanted to see uh, about how people could get along with each other and how they could appreciate each other and music being a common language. And also I wanted to show off, you know, a, a part of Chicago that people hadn't seen before. You know, the southeast side, I mean, I think there were a couple hundred thousand people working in the steel industry when I was growing up. I actually worked in Republic Steel myself this summer. And... um 
you know, it was it was a really interesting contrast of industrial reality and pollution, along with this beautiful downtown city, you know, and I think that coming up through the roots and the struggles of uh, of industrial America and the cultural collisions of different racial groups living together and, and seeing some of them get along and make it make it together was important. What I loved about Stony Island, obviously, would be the music. How did you shoot all of those musical scenes? Well, I knew I didn't have the money to buy the rights of hit songs. We had had to create our own music. We literally put the band together in two weeks. Gene Barch had just finished producing Natalie Cole's uh, early album. And some of the rhythm section of that album wound up in the movie. Uh, Larry Ball and, 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 and Wendy Barnes and... Chris Johnson and Donnell Hagan, they all played on that album. And so, and, and Richie brought in Stoney and, and people he knew, and we put together this band and uh, wrote some songs in a couple of weeks. Tammy's brother, Carmi Simon, wrote some of them. And uh, we it, it's about a band struggling to make a sound and put a band together. So it's got an authenticity because of that. It was all recorded live. All the music was done in 12 days. And we actually shot at his funeral home on Stony Island. Tennyson Stevens, who was another one of the musicians with Phil Upchurch, who was part of that that uh, Chess Records uh, session musician ensemble with Maurice White and Donnie Hathaway that Gene used. Um, they all participated in the movie. And so it, it's got an eclectic group of, of, of songs from, you know, R&B and and soul and jazz. And I remember I showed the movie to Herbie Hancock early on. I wanted him to do the score. He didn't do it, but Herbie liked the music. So that was a good, big flag. That's a good sign. (laughs) Yeah. David Matthews, who would work to replace Bob James at CTI records in New York, wound up doing the score and he did a terrific job. I heard an album he did called taking off with Dave Sanborn. Uh, And that was the sound I wanted. And uh, David agreed to do the movie and, and the soundtrack is quite amazing. Going back to The Fugitive, there's been a lot of ink spill for the 30th anniversary, a lot of tributes. Were you surprised? Well, I, I don't, you know, I don't know why the number 30 means more than 25 <laughs> or 20. <laughs> I don't know, but it's interesting because uh, Harrison just turned 80, 80s, 81. Tommy and I were 46 when we made the movie. Harrison was 50. So, to look back and see the kind of work we did then and, and the kind of shape they were in physically. I mean, they both of them got pretty beat up making that movie, especially Harrison. And he has a real limp in that. That limp isn't fake in the movie. Yeah, that, that was not a fake limp. Um, but, um, you know, it, it was just it was just incredible that people people still see this movie over and over. I mean, at the, at the tribute the other night at the Cinematheque in, in L.A., you know, people, I made a comment because before it started, uh, the, the, the presenter said, you know, how many people have seen this movie? You know, when I'm, and I said, I realized that this is an environmentally profound movie because people go into the to- don't flush the toilet a lot when they're watching it. <laughs> so they got a lot of laughs. Will, but, there, um, will there be any uh, anniversary events here in Chicago? It's going to play theatrically. Warner Brothers is planning on re-releasing the movie in the fall, and there's going to be a new Blu-ray, uh, 4K Blu-ray with with Atmos sound on it. So, and it'll look as 
is better than it's ever looked before. If you watch it on a, on a good monitor with the Blu-ray, it's going to be amazing because we were able to do certain things with color correction and certain things with uh, making things special uh, digitally that uh, will make it really s- reverberate. And when it's re-released here, where will it be? I'm not sure which theater it'll be in, but it'll be in a good theater that can show it in 4K Atmos. Okay, great. Well, you know who will be there. That would be me. Uh, We've been talking to director of The Fugitive and Chicago native Andrew Davis. Thanks for joining us, Andy. And Natalie, I'm so impressed with your work. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. I'm so impressed with what you've done, and we need to talk some more about what our backgrounds are, because I know we share a lot of things. Thank you.